The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And our study once again today is in verses 1 through 8, and we will continue our discussion of the Lord's command that we walk worthy of his kingdom in all ways that please please our holy God. Christ's commandment to be holy is given here in this fourth chapter uh, to the Thessalonian church, but we know that it's no less our command today. The scriptures are timeless so that when we read the word of God, we know that it's the God who is the God of yesterday, today, and forever who gave us this word. And so everything that's written here is timeless and the word of God is always a current event. And I think this is noticeable in this letter because of the problem of personal purity in the Thessalonian church that it looks very, very much like a modern problem. It looks very much like today's society, and uh, we identify with it because of the sexual revolution of our modern culture. It's really nothing less than the old, or nothing more, however you want to say that, uh, than the old hedonism of the ancient culture of the Greeks and the Romans. Now, this, this text that we're reading here in the first part is, is mostly about sexual perversion, and we're going to discuss that. I know it's an odd subject for Christmas time, but uh, we take the Word of God since we're in a study. We're just kind of following it as we go, and it brings us uh, to these, this text for these past few weeks. So this text is about sexual perversion. We will discuss that a little more in just a few minutes. But there are also other ways in which the first century attitudes concerning decency pollute our modern society. I, I worked on this sermon originally, uh, several weeks ago, and it was just after the gruesome killing of worshipers in a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh. And I'm like many of you, I'm sure that when you heard that news, you said, as you have so many times, it seems lately, what is this world coming to? What's going on in our country? What's happening to us? Seems that we ask that question quite a bit. And people ask, how are we going to stop this bloodshed? How how do we stop all of this violence that is splashed before us almost every evening in the news. And I know there are many proposals for that. The Republicans and Democrats, the Tea Party, they argue about it. They have their clashes over gun control. And some believe that throwing away guns will cure somehow the moral disconnect in a psychopath's brain. But I'm not going to get into that discussion today. I'll just say this, that if our politicians and our schools and our churches keep regurgitating this myth, that all that we really need to do is to look on the inside, and there we can find the good that's in every person, then we will continue in the same violence. There are shootings in schools and in post offices and shopping malls and churches because we have taught people that that life has no value. We've taught them life has no value. We, we teach them that we are biological blobs with no purpose. We're just accidents of evolution. And none of us is connected by an intelligent, merciful creator God. 
and that we are just entities to ourselves. And if we continue to teach that, we'll get what we've got. If we look only inwardly, we'll find nothing there but a wicked, degenerate depravity. There's nothing in us but a sinful heart. And that heart is never going to rise above its selfishness. It can't because it won't. It has no desire to. It will not change. All that we hear is, do your thing. Do what pleases you. Uh, take care of yourself. You must be true to yourself above all else. And that is just the epitome of selfishness. That is never going to change. And if I should inject somewhat of a Christmas message today into this message, I would say that's why Christ had to come. Because we would not change. We would go on living as we always have. And we need that Savior to come into the world to save us from our sins. So before we'll ever be changed, the Holy Spirit of God must regenerate us and create in us a new heart. And when He does that, He puts us on the path of the intended purpose for humanity. And that purpose is to glorify Him by being as righteous and virtuous as God Himself. Now this loose... Uh, perverse sexual morality of our culture is demeaning, it is debased, it disrespects the dignity of human beings that are created in the image of God. When we're told that humans are animals and that we evolve from animals, then we get people that act like animals. In effect, you get the Roman culture that had no regard for human life. And the American culture is not different from that, not with court-sanctioned murder and animals in heat mentality. And Paul's point here in this text is that Christians, simply Christians, cannot be a part of that lifestyle. Now perhaps the verse that, that anchors this section is verse number 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God has called us to holiness. And in verse number 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Those two verses are essentially the same. That God's people are called to be separate from this culture. We are called to a life of holiness. Now if you look at our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll read once again at verse number 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus... That as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For we know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us the Holy Spirit. Now, in the past two weeks, we've, we've climbed through this text, we've Tempted to draw out the spiritual truths here that God intends for his people. And I don't want to do a, a long review. And there's a real purpose why I don't want to. And that's because much of what we talked about is gruesome. M much of what we talked about is so unpleasant. I take no joy to talk to you about it again. It was all about the perversity of our culture. 
But I want to remind you, though, that the Thessalonian church was in the heart of a Roman culture that practiced every form of sexual deviance. Chastity was a foreign word. They had no sense that their lifestyles were immoral, both in their religious and secular society. Sex, even violent sex, was acceptable. And not only acceptable, but it was encouraged and it was applauded. Sexual deviance was celebrated. If you could think it, you ought to be able to do it. It's just, it's just the way of life, they said. This is just the way we live. And it was just as common as coffee and donuts on Sunday morning. And I know that's not normal for some of you, but I can't help you with all your abnormalities. Uh, but it was just like that. Chastity to them was a foreign word. And in our American English vocabulary, once again, it's become a foreign word. It's a party today. It's a celebration. It's to be diverse. And I don't mean diverse as having a congregation like this, where we have people that come from different backgrounds or may come from uh, uh, different ethnicities and that sort of thing. No, we're talking about a diversity, as some might believe, oh, well, I'm genderless. That kind of diversity. Or switching genders as easily as you change your shoes. These lifestyles are against the commandments. They are against the moral code of the Holy Spirit that's given us His Word. They're practices for which God sent down fire and brimstone upon those who corrupted their bodies between themselves. And I know today, again, talking about Christmas season, it seems so harsh to say things like this, but we don't do anybody any favors when we hide things that are in the Word of God. This is very plain in God's Word. In both Old and New Testaments, we're told these things are evil. These are violations. And without exceptions, they are exception. They are against God. They are against the good of mankind. God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Well, there must be a definition of that somewhere in the Scriptures. Somewhere we should be able to find what is holiness, what is unholiness. And in fact, the Scriptures do tell us. Right here in this passage, this is one of those. This is a treatise on that very subject. Romans chapter 1 is an essay on that subject. 1 Corinthians 6 is a thesis on that subject. And the commandments that God gave are the commandments for this subject. The one who made human life, the one who rules human life, the one who has the right to command how to live this life, tells us in his infallible instructions what he expects. And he tells us, it's best and right to do what he says because he is the one who created us. Now, we could spend much, much more time dealing with how the world thinks and how the world is so far estranged from God. But this text is really not about that. I, I needed to tell you that. I needed to give you the background of, of this culture so that you would understand why Paul would say these things and how perverse that it truly was and, and uh, the real problem that he deals with. I needed to tell you that, but it's not about the world. This, this passage is not about what the world does. It's about how do Christians live? How are Christians to respond to all this wickedness that we see around us? What are we to do when we live in such a perverse society? The world is not going to change, and we're not going to convince them to change because it's not in their heart to decide to change or desire to change. But when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were changed. And you now have an ability by the Spirit of God to live a different way. 
You have that ability to live like you're supposed to. The Holy Spirit is in you and he won't let you live in unrighteousness. And if you have somehow convinced yourself that you are a Christian and you can go on living like you used to live, you're confused, you're mixed up and you may not even be a Christian at all because the Holy Spirit won't let you do it. So we come to this part of the text where we have this exhortation for holy living. Paul says, God has called you to holiness. Now we looked at this, we began this last week, that number one in our outline was the exhortation for the Christian walk. That it's not permissible for a Christian to live a pre-conversion lifestyle. These Thessalonians were not to step back into the culture and practice the sins of the past. Now before they were saved, chastity might have been a foreign word, but it is no longer... Now they've heard, now they should understand, they've been saved by Jesus Christ, they have the gospel of God, and therefore they have learned chastity. And so they are to live, to walk, to please God. Now if you want more information on that first point, I encourage you to listen to the message from last week. We are to be sanctified, we are to be holy. That takes a determined, concerted effort. That does not come automatically. Living for Christ is a daily battle against the flesh. If you're saved, you know that. You live in this world, you go to work every day, you know this. It is a battle to stand for Christ. And it's a battle that you could never win before. But now you can. You have God on your side. You have God's help. You have God's angels on your side. You have God's ministers on your side. You have God's church on your side. The people that you go to church with can be your help to help you to overcome this, this problem of immorality and being soaked in, in our minds with the culture. Now, walking worthy of the kingdom is a commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse number two. This is not optional. We are to be pure. Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, commands it. Well, then we, we started to look at our second point, which was the expression of God's will. Holiness, sanctification, that is God's will. And we need to let that sink in. That's the command. Christ commands it. The Father wills it. And so you must look at your life and say, where do I stand in that equation? How do I relate to that command? Now, since sexual impurity was the main persistent problem that kept the Thessalonians from growing in their faith, Paul knew he couldn't go any further. He couldn't teach them anything else. He couldn't talk to them about sanctification until this problem is dealt with. And I would say that to you, that living in this culture, if it's, if it's soaked into your mind, if you are immersed into the myriads of ways that pollute your mind, then you'll not grow as a Christian. Not until this critical problem is dealt with. Now in chapter 3, verse number 10, Paul said he wanted to return to Thessalonica to teach them more, to supply the areas that were lacking in their faith, and this is the thing that's lacking. Their faith had not yet corrected their lifestyles. It not brought them fully out of the immorality of that culture. In chapter 4, verse number 3, that identifies, here he identifies the lacking part of chapter 3, verse 10. They must abstain from fornication. It's a word that simply means inordinate sexual desire, whether it's in actions or in thought. And I don't need to enumerate all those ways again. We've been through that. I only need to tell you that any practice of sex outside of the marriage of one man to one woman is fornication. And it's against God's word. 
So if you can think of anything that you might do, anything that you might think that's outside of the marriage covenant, that is fornication. And everybody in here knows how hard it is to keep that command. You know what it's like in this society. And I think that the, the reason fornication is almost always at the top of the list of sins is because it covers so much, it is so prevalent, it's so difficult to stop that it will not be stopped unless the Holy Spirit helps us do it. And so if you conquer this sin, all other sins are much easier to deal with. You've got to get rid of this first. Now, the Scripture says the Lord commands you must abstain from fornication. Now, we can accept that. The Lord commanded it. So all of us as good Christians, we sit here and say, God said this. We're to do that because God said it. But the big question is how? How are we going to do it? How will we follow this? Because it's so difficult. I think the text gives us three ways that we can deal with it. It's God's will that you stop. Now, there's one main way that will help you to stop. And nestled under that are two other ways. And this is what you must do. You, you must, first, you must control your desires. That's our first point. You must control your desires. Now, once again, in verse number four, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And you remember that last week I explained to you, vessel there means your body. You must learn to possess your body in sanctification. And there's two ways that you can go here. Either you will control your body or your body will control you. And which way you go is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Now the simple truth is your body will always try to control you. It always will. There's a natural power that is in every one of us that resists everything holy that we want to do. Each of us is controlled by a human nature that is depraved and it's as likely to do what we shouldn't do. It is likely to do that as anything. We are as likely to resist it, what we are by birth, as pigs are to fly. We can't do it. You're always going to do what the human nature dictates. But when you're saved, God gives you the ability to resist your fallen nature. That's accomplished by the new nature that God puts in you. Well, how do we explain that? What is this new nature? What does the Bible mean when it talks about a new nature? Well, it's not something that's tangible. You can't see it with a full body scan. You know, in these past few weeks, uh, my wife has been through so many tests and so many scans and so many times that they've looked at her brain and found out if there's, there's or bleeding there and so forth. There's lots of things that they could see on a scan. But this is not something that you can see on a body scan or anything like that. This is what's called a disposition of the mind. The new nature is the implantation of new spiritual desires that comes by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Bible calls it the renewing of the mind. It's what changes our disposition towards God, towards sin, and towards self. Now, when the Holy Spirit begins to work in you, there are certain byproducts of that work. One of them is self-control. The King James Version calls it temperance. That's self-control. You'll see that in Galatians 5.23, where it says one of the fruits of the Spirit is temperance. And that is a word that is very, very specific as a fruit of the Spirit. And it means that you are enabled to control yourself in the area of sex. 
Now, by the things that I've told you concerning that society, you can well imagine why Paul would want to deal with this and tell them one of the fruits of the Spirit is temperance. It's self-control. You can control yourself. Now, in our text, verse number 5 says, Not in the lust of concupiscence. I'm not sure when was the last time you used the word concupiscence. You probably haven't used it. Maybe you don't even know what it means. It means inordinate sexual desire. Now, you can't suppose that after you're saved, all the things that you used to do, all the things that you used to watch, all the, th- the parties that you attended, all the games that you played that had anything to do with this kind of stuff, you can't suppose that the moment that you get saved, all of that desire goes away. You no longer want to do any of those things anymore. Abstaining is not natural behavior. It's learned behavior. It is determinative behavior. And it means that you must stop involving yourselves in all these things that wrongly influence your behavior. So it means you're going to have to do some hard things. It means you'll have to do some things your flesh doesn't like. Some, you'll resist some things your flesh wants to do. In fact, many things that your flesh wants to do. You must resist them. Sex is like a drug that just keeps pulling you back in. That's why it's so hard to resist. It's a natural desire, and you've got to struggle against that. But I want you to know that when God says you must stop sinning, he does not command the impossible. Now, neither does he command the optional. Without Christ, it is impossible. But the Word of God says with him, with God, all things are possible. So the first thing that you must do is reorient your thinking according to the understanding of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. These are familiar to you. What? Know ye not that your body, that is your vessel, is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God. So that's what you must do first. You must realize your body doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. Forget about your right to choose what you do. You don't have any right to choose anything other than what God wants you to choose. Now that would bring up the issue of free will. What do you mean? Christians don't have free will? Well, let me ask. Do you think in heaven you're going to have free will? You think you're going to do just what you want to do? Of course, you'll have a renewed nature, a glorified body, so you're not going to worry about desiring to do anything wrong. But what does the Bible talk about? The will that takes place in heaven. You always decide to do what God says. Jesus said, if the Son shall make you free, you will be free indeed. So that tells us there is no freedom except in Christ. We become slaves to Christ. That is, willing slaves to Christ, because our new nature never desires anything other than what God wills. So your free will is God's will. You're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So you don't have any right to do what you did before. The apostle said in Romans 6 that you were made free from sin. And the only way to be made free from sin is to become the servant of righteousness. So you don't have a choice. Romans 6 verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. So now yield your members. That's the same thing as saying yield every part of that vessel that is your body. 
as a servant unto holiness. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin, you became servants to God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. It's very clear. There's no argument. If God says abstaining is right, then you must reorient your thinking to match God's way. Now what the schools tell our children, well, if you got a problem here, use a condom. God says if your right hand offends you, cut it off. You can make the connections appropriately as you choose. Now a second thing to do is that you are to control as you control yourself is to be proactive. To be proactive. Avoid those things that are the instigators of evil thoughts. For many of you, and we don't have a lot of teenagers in here today, and maybe this would be more appropriate if we did have many, many teenagers. But for many of you, what this will take is a change of friends. Change your friends. Look at your Facebook page. Who are your friends? What do your friends write? What do they post? What are their videos? And I'll make it simple for you. Defriend them. Defriend them. Defriend anyone who posts anything by association that gives you a bad reputation. Understand very well that the people that you hang out with are you. The people you hang out with are you. Your friends are you. Now the next thing that you've got to do is to avoid the places where bad stuff happens. What business do you have at a rock concert? What business do you have at a caterwauling country music event? What business do you have in nightclubs or vulgar comedy shows? Here's another one. What business do our young people have at dances? You know, once upon a time, Christians wouldn't dance. And how much worse is it now that we know that the purpose of the dance is to control and incite wrong passions? If you can defend Godliness from it. I'd like to hear it. We don't call that godliness. We call it compromising with the world. Do you think the Thessalonians danced? They sure did. Absolutely they did. Their dances were sexually excitable. And in the Roman culture, that led to sex with the temple prostitutes. And I can't think of anything other than this, that the dance, the modern dance today is visual prostitution. The next you've got to... Shut off the TV, the videos, the movies that invite your mind into deviance. Now, what I'm not doing today is giving you rules. And I'm not saying, oh, these are the rules that the people in the church are going to live by. And I'm going to stamp it and put the seal on and say, take this and you do this. I'm not not doing that. I'm just giving you good advice. How are you going to conquer this? Well, you've got to remove the things that keep leading you into the bad things, that thoughts that you have and actions that you do. Now, it goes without saying that Christians are not to look at porn. But why do I say it? Because Christians look at porn. I remember several years ago, there was a member of our church who copied some files onto a flash drive for me. And I think there were some family pictures and some vacation pictures that he wanted me to see. And he didn't realize that when he selected his picture folder, that it also picked up his porn folder. And I was quite surprised to receive that. Um, Christians are wrapped up in that part of the culture. I'm surprised. Well, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that nearly every day in my inbox I receive an article about Christians that have porn addictions. There was a Christian man who called me the other day asking about porn. And he wanted to know, is it a sin 
if you accidentally see porn. So I said, well, how are you accidentally seeing it? It, it turns out that he was just visiting the same websites over and over as if the next click was going to lead him to something different. That's what he called an accident. That's what I called an addiction. Now, you remember what I said about the right hand that offends you? If that right hand is your electronic devices, then you're better off throwing away electronic devices. Now, believe it or not, those things aren't necessary for living and breathing and eating. We might think that they are, but they aren't. So if that's the thing that causes you the problem, you've got to get rid of it. Thought processes must be tightly guarded. So maybe you don't physically do anything. I mean, physically, you don't, you don't touch anybody. Physically, you don't have any bodily contact with anyone. But it's no less sin. So what do you do? You count your body as the Lord's possession. And you must be proactive about that. You, you select to do good works of righteousness that you were designed for. So you substitute the bad activities you were involved in with positive works for the Lord. You look for ways that you can help in the Lord's work. There's an old song. We haven't sung it in years, but it says, Take time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. Abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children. Help those that are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessings to seek. Another good thing for you to do is to mark out people in your church that are good examples. Now, many of my heroes in this church, you might be surprised, many of my heroes in the church are the guys out on the yard crew. Really, the guys out on the yard crew. And I, and I wonder, why do they do that every week? Why are they here? What are, what are they doing? What do they get out of that? And I, I just have, there must be a sense of satisfaction in it. There must be something in there that they love this place. That's what they want to do. And they want to be useful in any way that they can. And so this church is their life. And this is their addiction. Their addiction is God's work. How can I help God's people? And then how plain can I be about this? If you've got problems cutting bad habits, then why aren't you in church more often? Why aren't you at the Bible study? I said it last week, and I'll just have to say it again. If you aren't here, it's not because you're home studying the Bible. We know that. We know that. It ain't happening. But let me go on. What else can you do? Well, a person in control of his body, is not going to stretch into all sorts of contortions to get as close to the world as he can get and yet maintain his balance and, and consider himself a Christian. Now, if you think that walking the border of the kingdom is walking worthy of the kingdom, then you're seeking to the wrong kingdom. I'm not going to read the entire passage. I use it often. Here's what Peter said about walking close to the edge. In Second Peter chapter 1, he said, Add, add virtue to your faith. Add knowledge to virtue. And then what? Self-control. Add self-control. Temperance to knowledge. Then he says, add patience, add godliness, add kindness and love. Now, when you analyze that, what's he saying? You can't walk close to the edge and do these things. You're walking very close over to the other side of Jesus Christ. You keep getting closer to Christ. Then he tells you what happens when you do that. That's in verse 11 of that chapter. For an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there are some Christians that all they want to do is just drag their sorry carcass into the everlasting kingdom. 
There's some Christians that want to escape by the skin of their teeth. If I can just get there somehow, I'm satisfied. Peter says, you want to be ushered in abundantly, bringing all the righteous acts of your life with you. So you wake up every morning thinking, how can I use this day for the glory of God? So first, control your desires. Paul's second advice in the passage is to live like a believer. Now, I know that's simplistic. It seems redundant. How do you live like a believer? Well, I think the best thing you could do is probably search the scriptures to, to see how believers lived. What did they do? How did they act? Who did they trust? What, what was their hope? Some people will say, well, I've got a solution to this. You just live like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Very good advice, except there's, what, a million opinions about what Jesus would do, and most of them have nothing at all to do with Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that, that this very thing that introduced us into the, the salaciousness of today's immorality, the very thing that introduced us is this statement that Jesus is tolerant. That he's tolerant of people's lifestyles. Jesus will never condemn anyone. And you know what they do? We've got scripture for that. We can prove that to you. They say, what about Jesus and the woman who is in adultery? Jesus said, hey, you guys that are without sin, you cast the first stone. And they'll say, you're not to judge. Don't judge anybody. And then they say, Jesus turned to the woman and said, neither do I condemn you. Seems they always forget the last part, don't they? Jesus said, go and sin no more. He doesn't, he's not tolerant of sin. He wasn't tolerant of the woman's sin. He wasn't tolerant of the hypocrisy of the men. It's better to see that Jesus never gives anybody a pass on sin. So you live like a believer. Follow, follow a good leader. Paul, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Choose a leader in the church that you can follow. Which one? Well, let's start with the ones that are here. Start with the ones that go to church. Start with the ones that are faithful to all the services. Who are good leaders? They're the ones who fight through all the hindrances to be here. Satan hinders everybody. Did you know that? He's working on everybody. I don't care if you're a leader or who you are. He works on you. Good leaders learn how to deal with Satan and recognize the things in their lives that lead them closer to the edge rather than into the virtues of their faith. Who are those that live like a believer? Galatians 5.24 tells us, this is good advice. Pay very close attention to it. Who are Christ's people? And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lust. That's quite interesting. Christ's people have crucified the flesh with affections, its affections and lust. They put to death the things the flesh loves. The, fling, the things the flesh lust after. What might that be? Well, verse 5 of our text tells us the lust of concupiscence. Very same word that we find translated lust in Galatians 5.24. The ones that are Christ know how to possess themselves in sanctification and honor. They live as Christ wants them to live. They live like believers in this regard. They get rid of all inordinate sexual desires that mess with the mind. Now, if you'll let me stop preaching for just a minute, you're probably glad to hear that statement. But if you'll let me stop preaching for a minute, I'm going to start meddling. I've never been accused of being politically correct. So it's my turn to get in trouble again. What would you think if I announced to the ladies, we're going to begin a new class next week. 
All the ladies are going to meet 7 o'clock next Thursday. And this new class, the subject will be how to look sexy when you go to church. I, I think most of you would be, you would be appalled by that. And I think that I wouldn't need to say anymore because the wheels are already spinning in your mind. And you know, you know yourselves. You're already thinking about that. You don't need my help to explain. But what if I also said this, that what people wear is an advertisement of what's in their heart? And what if I said the true desires of the heart is the thing that you advertise? It'll show up on the outside. Do you think people would be more careful if they learned that? Or what if I should commit the ultimate faux pas and say that women often advertise sex? And whether you agree with this statement or not, there are men out there that are looking to buy what you advertise. There's no excuse for the men. I'm not saying there is. But who is the fool that dangles the carrot and wonders, why did somebody take a bite? Did you know animals secrete an odor for sex? The male gets a whiff of that. He knows he's invited. He smells the female in heat. Now, that's crude. That's not PC. But I would ask, is it the mind of Christ when a woman takes off nine-tenths of her clothes? This stuff is not that hard to figure out. So let's, let's, let's move on. There, there, there'll be a feminist march outside that's just incredulous that such things could possibly be true. So how do you avoid fornication? Control your desires. Live like a Christian. Here's third, the third thing. Don't take advantage of others. Don't take advantage. Verse number six. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified. Don't defraud your brother. It just simply means don't take advantage of him. Now it's appropriate that Paul would mention this considering he was accused of this very thing by enemies in Thessalonica. So he said, I never used deceit. And he said, I never spoke with guile. There was never any uncleanness. And specifically, that word means that there were never any sexual favors in his ministry. The scandals that we see in ministry today are precisely what Paul speaks of here. Men in positions of authority take advantage of weaker people. They defraud them. They abuse children, teenagers, and where possible, they abuse adults. Now keep all those, keep all those categories in mind. Children, teenagers, and adults. And now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. A man in the ministry who takes advantage of another is under severe condemnation. I don't know how many of you look at Christianity today, but there's a recent article that came out about sexual abuse in independent Baptist churches. I think it was a newspaper in Fort Worth that did an expose, a four-part expose that you'd be very interested in reading probably. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do with pastors, priests, youth ministers, children's workers? He wouldn't ship them off to another parish or another church where they can abuse some other weak person. Now, he tells us what he would do. Matthew 18, verse 5. What would Jesus do? And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. 
Now I said remember those three categories because a little child in Matthew 18 is not just a chronological little child. It means any person who belongs to Jesus Christ. That's a child, that's a teenager, that's the infirm, that is the helpless. What would Jesus do? He would hang a millstone around that person's neck. He would take a massive stone for grinding wheat and hang it around his neck and then throw him into the depths of the sea. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? What does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't play around with those who harm his people. Now, the interesting thing about Matthew 18 is he said it would be better if this happened to him because that's not what's going to happen to him. Jesus doesn't put millstones around anyone's neck. He casts them into the everlasting fires of hell. How does that fit the discussion? Well, hear me well on this, that sex outside of marriage takes advantage of the other person. It, it, it's the sensual pleasure of the perp. It defrauds the other person. It never gives them anything. It always takes away. It never adds. It always hurts. It treats them shamefully. So if you defraud another person, you don't value them. You value you. You're just an animal that's looking for one thing, satisfy sexual desires. Well, I must conclude, I think I very, made it very clear, hopefully, in these sermons that the sexual revolution is a tool of Satan that destroys lives. It undermines the church, it ruins the effectiveness of the believer, and eventually the whole church is ruined. That can't be a part of your life if you'll be a part of Christ. You were saved and made separate for God. So we'll conclude with verse number 8. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Just quickly, number 3, the exercise of God's judgment. Why should we abstain from fornication? Because the one who rejects the commandments does not reject the apostle. The one who rejects this does not reject the preacher. The one who rejects this does not reject the Christ. The one who rejects this rejects God. You can't mess with God. You must not reject God. God will judge sin. He said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So have we seen God's vengeance in the sexual revolution? Well, again, it's not PC to say so, but where do we get AIDS? Well, how did that come upon us? Mostly almost entirely by homosexuality and then perpetrated on an innocent society through tainted blood supplies. Where do we get it? God's vengeance. What about venereal disease? Did you know it's on the rise again? For years it was going down, now it's on the rise again. And many, or we know this, I think, that, that many of the Roman emperors were mad because of sexually transmitted disease. I mean, they went crazy because of sexually transmitted disease. Our society is like theirs because we see it on the rise again. So we see divorce, we see destruction of the family. Is it a coincidence that Roe versus Wade and the supposed constitutional right to choose to abort coincided with the sexual revolution? Why? Because people couldn't deal with the results of their fornication. They can't deal with the consequences of fornication, so they said, just kill the babies then. So America became a society of murderers as well as adulterers. Why? Because that's where sin always takes you. It always goes down. There is no happy ending when you turn your back on God. God will judge. You don't reject God. 
your sins will find you out. Now, since the message is mostly to Christians, let's please understand that God will bring judgment on a disobedient church. Peter can help you with that. He said, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. What did Paul say would happen to him if he wasn't careful to keep his body in subjection? He wrote, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. He gave an example. In fact, he went to the Old Testament to give an example. 1 Corinthians 10. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. And what? Fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now you think that he's not talking there about death? Isn't that not a warning about death? And that's not to mention the loss of heavenly rewards for disobedient Christians. It's an awful price to pay to be involved in sexual sin. So don't do it. Stay away from it. Separate. And be holy. God's judgment falls on those who reject his commandments. But thank God for this. He gave you the Holy Spirit to fight temptations. His Spirit will produce in you the fruits of righteousness. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification. God didn't call you to uncleanness. But unto holiness. So if this is the thing that's lacking in your faith. This is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. This is lacking in their faith. If this is your problem, if your problem is you can't control your body, remember the Holy Spirit is in you. He's there to sustain you in holiness and godliness. You yield to the Spirit, and the Word of God says you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Walk worthy of God's kingdom. And this is the way that you do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us today to look into your word. And we understand, Lord, the subject is not, not appealing. It's not maybe what anybody wants to hear at Christmas. Maybe we should be talking about joy and peace and love and all of those things. But help us to understand there is no joy, peace, or love when there is sin in our lives. We're thankful that Jesus Christ came into the world to deliver us from our sins. He came to defeat the devil. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Help us to be holy. Help us to live by your spirit that you put in us and be a holy, godly, sanctified church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.